Open your Bibles to John 11. The second half of this chapter, if we call it a half, it's only 11 verses. It's very different from the first. The first was about Jesus Christ. What a compassionate high priest. What a compassionate Savior. What a lover of souls and a lover of friends and the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. If he were speaking in a similar vein in the second half, he would say, I am the death. Because he's going to bring that on his enemies. And I don't change the theme as much as the Lord changes the theme right here as we go into the 47th verse. And I want you to rejoice in both. I have confessed to you this day of having been distorted on one side in the past, but I never want to leave both sides of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is a compassionate high priest, and he is one terrible and holy judge of his enemies. He is a victorious conquering prince who will crush all his enemies, and he's going to crush them in unique fashion in the second half of this John 11. We had believers in the first half. We have unbelievers in the second half. We have his friends in the first half. We have his enemies in the second half. And his treatment of them is drastically different. And we must all answer the question this day as we conclude in a few minutes. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, he is anathema maranatha. Let him be anathema maranatha. Let him be under the curse of Christ and rather than his blessing. That is serious business and we're about to see the other side of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, to have a Savior, and we do, who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities and weeps when we weep, who's troubled and groans in his spirit when we're troubled, who is able with the power of his voice to deliver us from the pain that troubles us. And oh, with the power of his voice, he is able to bring pain and trouble on those that troubled him. And I love this part of John 11 as much as the first part. They are both part of my Lord Jesus Christ and they give him glory. Amen. John chapter 11 and verse 47. Lazarus has been raised from the dead and some of the witnesses that were there in the 46th verse went and told the Pharisees what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. Brethren, what makes the difference in men's hearts and lives? To say the words, What do we? What should we do? Because Jesus of Nazareth is doing many miracles. Well, the answer is easy. Repent and believe on him. But instead, they conspire to kill him. Jesus Christ will cause divisions among everyone you've ever known. Speak about him. Live like him. Live a life of godliness. And it will separate you from other men. It will reduce you to a small group of friends if you are blessed to have them. Others saw the miracles and believed on him. Look over at Luke 7. Let me chase 
a little rabbit here, and it's the resurrection of a widow's son. Verse 11 of Luke 7, And it came to pass the day after, Luke seven eleven, And it came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and much people. Now when he came nigh to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and much people of the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said unto her, Weep not. And he came and touched the buyer, and they that bare him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say unto thee, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak. And he, that is Jesus, delivered him to his mother. And there came a fear on all. And they glorified God, saying that a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God hath visited his people. And this rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea, and throughout all the region round about. And the disciples of John showed him of all these things. Let's come back to John 11. I wanted to show you the effect of raising the dead and what it should be. But the Pharisees gathered together a council and say, What do we for this man doeth many miracles? They were more foolish and wicked than Pharaoh because one greater than Moses was in their presence. Moses may have brought some plagues upon Egypt that were pretty dramatic, but the Lord Jesus Christ for three years had done more, John would say in hyperbole, that if they were all recorded, the earth could not contain the books of all that Jesus did and said in his ministry. What do we? We have a problem in their council among themselves, not with the people listening, but with the religious leaders. We have a problem. Jesus of Nazareth is doing many miracles. If we let him thus alone, the way that we have allowed him to be alone and to operate freely thus far in his ministry of over three years, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. I am not going, I don't want to to elaborate on this too long. What they are saying in their council is what happens once you submit to heresy and once you allow deception and wickedness into your heart Along with it comes hypocrisy. The noble statements here are not the full truth. Because the full truth, they're noble in this respect. By place, they mean their temple. I'll get to that in a moment. By nation, they mean the nation of the Jews. The Romans were not going to take it kindly if they heard of a general upheaval in Palestine because of Jesus of Nazareth and many people following him, and if he tried to reduce their submission to the Roman government, Rome would send an army and crush them. Pilate knew, and the Bible admits, that the reason that Jesus was delivered into the hands of the Gentiles for crucifixion was out of envy. But when you get everyone together, and hypocrisy has set in, and deception has set in, and your wickedness... You will make things look noble. 
But there is no noble discussion taking place here. It's, we have to get rid of Jesus of Nazareth. Forget the political ramifications. That is so pitifully weak. We don't care about expediency, as Caiaphas is going to call it. We want truth. We want righteousness. And we want wisdom that God calls wisdom. If we let him thus alone, if we let this event stand, do you know later in John chapter 12 they wanted to kill Lazarus as well as Jesus? If we let this stand, all men are going to believe on him. Look at this miracle. Look what happened in John 9. They didn't know that it was going to be recorded in John 9. The man born blind was healed of his blindness. The Romans will come and take away our place. I hope that you recognize that all men will believe on him is severely limited. Just like all of Judea went out to be baptized of John, the men speaking, were they planning on believing on Jesus? Or is this one of the countless cases in the Bible where a universal term, and I just preached this to the men in Bible hermeneutics a couple of weeks ago, has understood exceptions. A universal positive has understood negatives, and a universal negative has understood positives, and thus we read the Bible, and we don't worry when we run upon verses that have all and all men in them. Look at what it says. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. No, they won't, because he's already done many miracles, and not all men believed on him. In fact, it was a minority of the nation that believed on him. The Jews called their temple their holy place, because it was a holy place, and it was one of their great blessings. It was only a few weeks ago, unrelated to this passage, that I preached to you from Jeremiah chapter 7, or it was read to you by my father, Jeremiah 7, they were relying on God defending them and delivering them from trouble based on their temple. Because in Jeremiah 7, they said three times, which looked sort of funny, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. Look at Acts chapter 6, just very briefly, and let's look at Stephen the deacon as he is accused by the Jews, and he's accused of a particular crime. And it's one that should rejoice your heart, that he was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is the gospel of the kingdom, that Jesus Christ was king, and would come back and destroy the temple. I wish that you all grasped how large of an event the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. was to the vindication of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of parables, the fulfillment of prophecies as ancient as the book of Deuteronomy, mentioned numerous times by numerous writers of Scripture, and mentioned here when the the Jews accuse Stephen. Acts chapter 6, verse 13, They set up false witnesses, which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. Amen. Amen, he was going to do that. Amen, Jesus said that. And Stephen had preached it, but he hadn't said anything blasphemous. They're accusing him of blasphemy when it wasn't blasphemy. But notice, 
in the word, in the verse 13, there's holy place. And in verse 14, there's place referring to their temple and the destruction of it. Jesus said, as his disciples admired the beauty of that massive structure that Zerubbabel had begun and Herod had finished, that there wouldn't be two stones in it left attached to each other to be torn down to the ground. Look at Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. Paul is in the temple in Jerusalem. And the Jews spot him there. Jews spot him there in the temple. Acts 21, 28, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people and the law and this place. And further brought Greeks also into the temple and hath polluted this holy place. There's more, but I don't need to show you more. That should be enough. We believe the intent is for them to protect their temple, which was very important to them. That's where all their religious money was made. That's where their religious activities took place. That's where their money changers sat with their tables and uh, made cash while the sun shone on the nation of Israel. And so they say, if we leave Jesus alone with miracles like this, all men are going to believe on him. It's going to change the state of affairs. And they don't really care about that. What they care about really is themselves being changed. But they mention the place and the nation being taken away because the Romans will come and subject them more than they had been subjected. We believe this is the intent, for their words are noble and national, not honest and condemning in there. If they were just referring with the word place to their jobs, they would have used a different word, but it wouldn't fit with the context here. Sometimes we look at this verse, maybe you have, and seen the word place. They didn't want to lose their jobs, which was true. But in this particular case, they are talking with noble ambitions, noble desires, noble concerns for the safety of their nation and for the safety of their place, meaning the temple, as I've shown you, it was used that way by the Jews. We believe that. We understand that. But brethren, when men devise against God, He is going to bring their own plans down on their own heads. Would you look in the book of Psalms with me for some very unpolitical words, but the seventh Psalm would be a good place to start. Just let me remind you of what God had said in advance. They were afraid of losing their temple and their nation. Psalm 7, verse 14. Behold, he travaileth with iniquity, and hath conceived mischief, and brought forth falsehood. He made a pit, and digged it, and is fallen into the ditch which he made. His mischief shall return upon his own head, and his violent dealing shall come down upon his own pate. There's the prophecy of God's word about when a man sets himself against the Lord, and against his Christ, and against his people. Touch not mine anointed is the rule of Scripture, or I'll touch you. Chapter 9, verse 15. The heathen are sunk down in the pit that they made. In the net which they hid is their own foot taken. The Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Higion, Selah. 
The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. The Lord is known by the way He executes judgment. What they fear the most, what they try to avoid, what they do, ends up on their own heads. Now they're here in this council saying, if we let Jesus alone, the Romans are going to come and take away our temple and take away our nation. Do any of you get a heart full of glory? Is your mind full of glory? If we let him alone, the Romans will come and take away our temple and nation. So they kill him, and the Romans came and took away their temple and nation because they killed him. Praise God. Are you thinking of Haman, who built a gallows that he could hang Mordecai on it, but he himself and his ten sons were hung on it. And so these Jews were conspiring and trying to protect their jobs, their offices, their temple, which they loved for the wrong reasons, their nation, which they loved for the wrong reasons, and instead they killed the Lord Jesus Christ and God took away those things because they killed Him. Look at Luke chapter 19. I want you to know exactly why the destruction of Jerusalem took place. Look, Luke chapter 19, verse 41. Luke 19, 41. And when he was come near, this is the Lord Jesus Christ, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace. Notice the exclamation point. But now they are hid from thine eyes. For the days shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. The God of glory had come to this earth, And he came to one nation, the nation of Israel. And he came to one city predominantly, the city of Jerusalem. And he came to one place in that city, and it was in the temple. Because God had prophesied by Haggai, in this place will I make peace. That's where God tore the veil from top to bottom. But they did not know the time of their visitation. The Lord Jesus Christ would say, You are able to tell that a red sky at night is a sailor's delight. And there's going to be a nice day tomorrow. But a a red sky and lowering in the morning is dangerous and you're going to have bad weather. You are able to tell what kind of weather is coming, but you're not able to tell that the Son of Man is here. They did not know the time of their visitation and the city of Jerusalem was leveled. But you were never taught it in Sunday school and you were never taught it in other pulpits. But it happened in 70 A.D. The Roman armies came and leveled that place. They pulled plows across it. To tear up foundations. It took them a great deal of effort to tear up the foundations of some of those magnificent buildings because they had killed the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm preaching to you about a Jesus Christ that isn't preached in very many places. That long-haired, effeminate John Lennon that stands in some garden begging is not the Jesus Christ of the Bible. There is no picture like that of Him anywhere. He did come. He came with the Roman armies and destroyed them, just like Daniel had prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, that for the overspreading of abominations, he would make the place desolate. And he did make it desolate. 
Look at Matthew chapter 21. I'm sorry, brethren. I'm, I'm, I'm as excited about this subject as I was the first one. I hope I'm always equally excited, or just about equally excited, of everything the Bible has to teach us about the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the way the Lord Jesus Christ spoke to the Pharisees when He was with them directly. This is the parable of the householder. I can't... I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. There was a certain householder. It starts in verse 33. He planted a vineyard, hedged about, digged a wine press, built a tower, and let it out to husband and went to a far country. This is the Lord Jesus Christ and God. He's built the, he's built the nation of Israel, which is the church of God. He's gone into heaven and he sends servants to collect some of the revenue from that vineyard. He wants some of the money, some of the produce, some of the return of his capital that he invested. And it tells us that uh, his, the, the husbandman took his servants, verse 35, beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Those are the prophets and apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then the Lord of the vineyard says, well, I'll send my son. Surely they'll respect my son. So he sends his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they see the son and they say, well, this is the heir. Let's kill him in the parable. They say that. Verse 41 well, verse 40, Jesus, Jesus asks as part of the parable, what will he do unto those husbandmen? What will the Lord of this vineyard do? He built this vineyard, provided all the capital necessary for those men to make a nice living. He got a return on his capital. But when he sent his servants, the prophets and apostles, they beat them, stoned them, and killed them. When he sent his son, they killed him because they thought this is the heir. Now it can all be ours. They wanted to get rid of him so they could have their place in their nation. And then Jesus asks, what will the Lord of the vineyard do to those husbandmen? Verse 41, they say unto him, he will miserably, let these words sink into your ears. The Pharisees knew who he was talking to and they had the right answer. He will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. The kingdom of God was taken from the Jews and given to the Gentiles. Verse 43, Jesus said, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. Whosoever shall fall on this stone, speaking of himself, shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. When the chief priests and Pharisees... had The the chief what? Okay. Enjoy. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. Let's go back to John 11. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ is like, brethren. His words, weep not to the widow of Nain. His words, what will the Lord of that vineyard do to those husbandmen? You fall on me, you'll be broken. But if I fall on you, I'll grind you to powder. Why isn't that preached in every pulpit? Those are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you won't repent and break your life on Him, meaning changing your life, turning your life upside down, counting all things lost for the cause of Christ, then He'll fall on you and grind you to powder. And the great example of that is His falling on the nation of the Jews with the Roman armies under Titus Caesar in 70 A.D. and leveling that place. 
1.1 million died. Jesus said of it, there had never been tribulation in the world like it, and there would never be tribulation in the world after it. There is nothing that happened in World War II equivalent to what happened inside the city walls of Jerusalem. So what if people got burned by firebombing in Dresden or Hamburg in the German theater of war? So what about 100,000 or 90,000 in the cities of Nagasaki or Hiroshima? They died instantly. The vast majority of those that died. These people were starved to death by the siege of the Romans around their city. Noble women ate their own children. The blood flowed in the streets as the factious factions of the Jews killed each other. 1.1 million. That is the great tribulation because Jesus said, all these things shall come to pass on this generation. And thank you, Lord, for showing us that and for understanding passages like this, that when they sit in their council and they devise the kings of the earth, take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that he in the heavens shall laugh and have them in derision. Why isn't that preached? The God of heaven laughed at these Jews and this council and then them taking the Lord of glory to Pilate, and then to Herod, and the kings of the earth, and the rulers of the Jews, stood up against his anointed, the Lord Jesus Christ, love Psalm 2, that was mentioned to us, and we sang the Lord Jehovah reigns in our final hymn before the preaching. Let's come over to verse 49. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, He's mentioned throughout the Gospels. He's the one that Jesus said had the greater sin of delivering him to Pilate. Oh, there, I don't have time to preach everything about Caiaphas, brethren. But he's, he's one of the high priests. He knew about Jesus Christ. He was a high priest when John began his ministry three years earlier. He was the high priest at the crucifixion. He was a Sadducee. The book of Acts tells us that about him. Do you know what it means meant to be a Sadducee? You were so liberal in your theology that you denied. What, what did you deny? Resurrection. The resurrection and spirits. Do you know how bad it was for a Jew to believe that there weren't spiritual beings? Do you know how bad it was for a Jew to believe there was no resurrection? When their Old Testament scriptures declare it plainly. But once you take on one error and you hold on to that error and you won't give it up, then the Lord puts blinders over your eyes and you and I are both capable of believing anything. And so it was with Caiaphas. But now one of, I want you to know that this council is not just the men that are visible in that room. There are holy ones and watchers. And they are the angels of God. And you are about to see the judgment of God and the glory of God in one Wonderful event. And this is one of the mysteries of the gospel. When we read about history, if it just told us that the rulership of the Jews got together, held a council, talked about Jesus, that he was a threat to them, he was a threat to their nation, that they needed to get rid of him, then that would be one thing. We would just have history. There wouldn't be a mystery there. But we have a mystery revealed to us. That God used Caiaphas like he used Balaam's transportation. And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, 
ye know nothing at all. You stupid idiots. Look at the arrogance of this man, brethren. The arrogance never goes away. He adjures Jesus Christ by the living God to tell him whether he's the Christ or not. And do you know what Jesus said? We need to look at that, please. Please humor me. It's Matthew 26. Matthew Jones, if you love me, I give you leave from the new website for 24 hours. Let's figure out how we can get the witness of 70 AD front and center on the old website. It's It's been a great blessing to many. I hope you know what I mean. I, I want it up front and center because it vindicates the glory of Jesus Christ as King more than anything else. Matthew 26, verse 62. Jesus is on trial. He's being falsely accused. The high priest arose. Matthew 26, 62. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God, that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, You bet I am. Our words would be, You bet I am. Exactly what you said. Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. They wanted his answer to a question. In the name of the living God, he told them, Yes, I'm the Son of God, but I have something else. I need to say. And that is that hereafter, you and some of your buddies standing around you, he uses the plural pronoun ye, are going to see me coming in judgment with the Roman armies in the clouds of heaven to tear this place to shreds. Ye. What did Jesus say in Matthew 26? I don't know where it is in Mark at the moment. And in Luke, he said, There be some of you standing here that shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. There's an event not taught in Sunday school. It's that Jesus Christ sent the Roman armies to tear that nation to shreds to fulfill numerous Bible prophecies. It's one of the exciting things for you to know that Jesus of Nazareth is worthy of your entire affection and devotion in your life because He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And those people, though they were His people, though it was the nation of the Jews, because they stood up against Him and crucified the Lord of glory, God tore them to shreds. Not taught. Everything's out in the future so that you can go watch movies like Left Behind. The Great Tribulation was here 2,000 years ago, and it was in the city of Jerusalem. And it was because Pharisees got together after the resurrection of a dead man that was stinking and wanted to kill the man who performed the miracle rather than repent and believe on him. John chapter 11. Brethren, if you have any doubts about the words coming in the clouds of heaven there in Matthew chapter 26, then you need to read the book of Isaiah. You need to read the Bible about 
how God rides the cloud. Have you read, read Psalm 18? I'll try to save you some time. Instead of reading all of that, read Psalm 18, Isaiah 13, and you won't have a problem knowing exactly what took place. Remember that Jesus had said, there be some of you standing here that shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom and coming with power and great glory to reward every man according to his works. Are we preterists? No. For anyone listening, are we preterists? No. We believe in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and a visible bodily return just as he left in Acts chapter 1 because that is what the Bible says and that's what they look forward to. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, the Apostle Peter describes what is about to come by fire is to burn up this earth just as the earth was overwhelmed by waters in the days of Noah. We believe that those things are literal and that this planet is going to be changed and altered greatly. We do not believe that everything has already been fulfilled in the way of all prophecies in the Bible. No, we are not preterists. All we are is those who believe the Bible and what Jesus said. We would be called historicists. I hope that answers your question. John chapter 11. Caiaphas being the high priest that same year said unto them, Ye know nothing at all. Now you know a little bit more about the man. Here's the rest of his speech. Nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. You idiots, can't you figure out that the axiom of of politics, that we sacrifice one person for the deliverance of the nation, fits this better than anything? That's how he was thinking. This is a near axiom, it's a rule, that if we can think of the right person, that if we kill them, then this army will leave us, or these politicians will be happy, we can make the Romans happy by just killing one person and saving the whole nation. That's what he meant by it. This is Caiaphas, the high priest of the Jews, thinking of political expediency. Do you know what this church thinks about political expediency and pragmatism? I'll reserve my words. The Bible word is dung. They're meaningless. We want truth. We want righteousness. We want wisdom. And that defined by God. Not expediency. This is a practical solution of a political problem. We can make the Jews, we can make the Romans happy by killing one man. If we kill one man, we'll be able to save the whole nation. That's all he meant. He was a rapacious, greedy, envious, wicked, arrogant murderer of the Lord Jesus Christ. The highest level that you can ever take his words to were that. He was a murderer. He would sacrifice an innocent man. A man that the rest of the nation knew to be at least a great prophet for raising the dead, for having the many miracles. They didn't call them the many fake miracles. The many miracles. Murder them. You idiots. What are you sitting around having a council for? I can answer it in one sentence. Kill them. Kill them. And we'll offer that as a sacrifice to the Romans. And did they try to tell Pilate that? Do you know what, you know what Caiaphas' accusation was to Pilate? I'm running out of time now to take you to the passages. This man has been speaking against Caesar. He claims to be king. And we've brought him to you because we're loyal to the Roman government. If you don't crucify him, then you're not Caesar's friend. We are, and you're in trouble. Remember that whole thing? Okay, I want you to see it. This is all John 11. I'm sorry that you recently looked at a quiz about chapters of the Bible. 
and it said the raising of Lazarus, and then you had to pick from Acts chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 15, and John 11, that there's more in John 11 than the raising of Lazarus. There is this. And I love the prophecy of Caiaphas. The prophecy's over. It's verse 49 and 50. Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. The pragmatic, practical, political, expedient thing that we should do is kill Jesus Christ. It's going to get rid of our enemy, and it's going to save us from the Romans because we're going to put this believing on him and this religious upheaval to rest. But now God had those words come out of his mouth in the way they came out of his mouth like poor Balaam. Balaam is riding along on his ass, and the Bible calls it a dumb ass. Now, it's not one word, it's two words, dumb ass. Dumb is an adjective describing an ass because an ass is dumb, not because it's stupid, but because it can't speak. It's 2 Peter 2.16. The dumb ass, asses don't talk, but this particular ass talked. It was a talking ass. And it became a talking ass by the influence of God, and it turned its little head around and spoke to Balaam and said, and they had a conversation about whether they should go further or not, as the as the ass tried to warn Balaam about the angel of the Lord that was standing in the way. And the ass said, Have I ever mistreated you before? Why have you beat me these three times? <laughs> Balaam couldn't believe that his ass was defending himself. I've never done anything like that to you. This is the word of the Lord. And then Balaam went, and he went to make himself some money. The greed of Balaam. And he opened up his mouth. And what came out of his mouth? Blessings on Israel and curses on Moab. And can you believe the king of Moab was standing there? He was so excited that he finally had Balaam in place. He had spent a bunch of money burning all these sacrifices and he had all this spoil ready for Balaam. And Balaam opens his mouth on three occasions and blesses Israel and curses Moab. That is the Lord God turning their wicked devices upon their own pates. This prophecy, think about the words, ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. He is only thinking of delivering them from Rome. He is only thinking of political expediency. He is only thinking we can kill this one man and solve all of our problems. What is the big trouble? But do you know what he said? He said that one man needs to die as a substitute so that the people can be saved. And John explains that to us in verse 51. And Caiaphas didn't know what he was saying. And this spake he not of himself. Those words that came out of his mouth and the way they came out were not entirely of his divine, his devise. The God of heaven directed his arrogant his arrogance in this council to utter words that were a prophecy because he was the source of revelation for the nation. Under the Old Testament, when you were part of Israel, you were to hear the explanation of God's law from the mouths of priests. Malachi chapter 2 explains it. And this man was the chief priest. This was the man that should give a revelation about the truthfulness or the purpose or the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. Instead, he wants to murder him. But what does he end up saying? It is expedient for us. Brethren, is it expedient for you that Jesus of Nazareth died for the people? Do you see? He didn't mean his words that way. 
He meant his words another way completely. But look at the words that came out of his mouth. Is it expedient for us to have a Savior that would die for us and we don't have to perish? And he that believeth on him shall never perish. Praise God. That's what the Bible teaches. And so John is explaining it to us. This spake he, not of himself. These words didn't originate with him to come out just this way. But being high priest that year, he prophesied by the influence of Almighty God that Jesus should die for that nation. He wanted to kill him so they could keep their nation, so he could keep his job. But Jesus died for the nation within the nation, the true Jews, the elect of Israel, the elect of God. And then John goes on to explain, and not for that nation only of the Jews, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad, meaning us Gentiles, in the Piedmont of the Carolinas, of the United States, of America, of the Western Hemisphere. Praise the Lord. Look at what God is able to do with His enemies. They can spite, they say, if we let them alone, the Romans will come and destroy our temple and nation. They killed Him to save their temple and nation, and God sent the Roman armies to destroy their temple and nation. Then Caiaphas opens his mouth and tells them they're all idiots. But who was the biggest idiot of them all? Out of his mouth came a prophecy that Jesus of Nazareth was the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, that he was the fulfillment of Haggai 2, that he was the Messiah of the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. Praise God. That's what he's able to do with his enemies. But that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Have we just been taught that by someone recently from John chapter 10? Where he said in John 10, 16, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Did we just have that? Amen. Okay. So Caiaphas is preaching in agreement with Jesus. Amen. But it did not come of himself. It came from the God of heaven. Oh, the answer of the preparations of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for that 52nd verse. Thank you, Lord, for the whole thing. Verse 53, Then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death, not because they wanted a Savior, but because they wanted to save their nation from him. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence into a country near to the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then sought they for Jesus and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple, What think ye, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he were, he should show it that they might take him. And Judas went and fulfilled their desires. And the crucifixion took place at this Passover. And the rest of John is compressed into just a few days' time. That's John 11. What do you have? What a glorious Savior. He has compassion on us. He's the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Yea, Lord! Are you saying with Martha today, Yea, Lord, I believe. 
Are you going to live like it? Are you thankful to God for the faith that is in your heart by pure mercy and grace of God? If it were not for God making a difference in your life, you would be going to the Pharisees to accuse Jesus Christ of a capital crime against the nation and putting Him to death. Are you thankful that you worship a high priest and a king that is like the second half of this chapter, that is able to take Caiaphas and put them in their place, and is able to destroy his enemies? If he's able to destroy his enemies, he's able to destroy your enemies. If he is able to raise himself from the dead, which he did, he is able to raise you from the dead. Right. He, he has, if, if he tells you to weep for those that weep, he wept for those that wept. Right. He, he is our all in all, our all sufficient savior. I hope you see the gentle, kind, and loving side of him. And I hope you see the ferocious, just, and judging side of him. He is altogether worthy of all of your affection and desire. He is worthy of your complete obedience. If you neglect him, you are running face into, you are running right straight into verses like 1 Corinthians 16, 22, which I repeat for the second time. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha. Brethren, let's love him, delight in him, rejoice in him. Turn over our tears to Him. Know that He is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Knows that He is the resurrection and the life. Know that if our bodies die, our spirits are with the Lord, but He is coming back for our bodies. And we should not fear as others that have no hope. And let us remember that He is the King of the universe. And we should not worry about President Obama or anyone in Yemen or Egypt or anywhere else. Because Jesus Christ is King. He will take care of us, and He will take care of His enemies, and those in two very different ways. May Jesus Christ be praised.